0: Uh, You know, Bonnie Raitt was right. I I can't make you love me if you don't. And as much as brands want to talk about the quest for love, that's a two-way street. People want you to show them love, and one of the best ways brands can do it is by recognizing and rewarding somebody for what they genuinely want and need.
1: Welcome back to Blood, Sweat, and CPMs. I'm your host, Kurt Donnell. For our first episode of 2024, I had the pleasure of speaking with Ian Baer, founder of the Strategic Insights platform and marketing advisory firm Sooth. Ian has been solving marketing's greatest challenges for over three decades. He has spent his career helping major brands achieve extraordinary success and challenger brands punch above their weight class in leadership and executive roles with Publicist Group, TBWA. Rap Omnicom, Deutsch, and others. He was named to Campaign US's Digital 40 over 40. He's a contributor and thought leader for industry-specific and national publications, including Adweek, Fortune Magazine, and Campaign Magazine. He currently sits on the Customer Experience Advisory Board at Ithaca College and has participated in numerous televised interviews for platforms, including Live Now from Fox, News Nation, Talk TV, Fox 5 New York, Pierce Morgan, and Television Nation. This is truly one of my favorite episodes we've ever recorded. Excited to let you dive right in. Ian, thank you so much for joining me today, man. I appreciate it.
0: Oh, thanks, Kurt. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, just from the, uh, the, the pre-interview chat we've had, I'm like, I'm, I'm charging out of the gate.
1: <laughs> yeah. I love it. I love it. You have certainly a very unique background as many of our guests do, but let's start there a little bit. you got 30 years of experience in the agency world before you started your own business here. Walk us through a little bit of that background and uh, maybe the founder story too.
0: Sure. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, I didn't necessarily go looking to found anything a couple of years ago when I had the idea that led to Sooth, but uh, I spent 35 years in the agency business i uh have had multiple careers in that business i came up as an account guy and and then did what you know all account people eventually do if if they reach a certain point of growth i became an agency president did that a few times probably not my favorite job in the world uh pivoted into strategy spent a lot of years as a chief strategy officer also spent seven years as a chief creative officer so got to wear a lot of hats, got to work with amazing brands, amazing award-winning agencies. And along the way, developed my own methodologies for achieving client success that all had to do with unlocking a different level of emotional connection between brands and their customers and as i worked to codify that into something that was a repeatable scalable teachable practice what i found was that i had invented a methodology for using data to unlock empathy uh, and pivoted out of the agency business just over a year ago to launch a strategic insights platform and consultancy that we call sooth uh, remarkable in, in this world that you can actually name something with five simple letters and, and have it pass trademark, but um, it helps when you choose a word that's been obsolete in the English language for about 400 years. There we go.
1: <laughs> Did you get the domain? Was the domain hard? we you have the
0: domain, Sooth Be Told. Uh, okay. a, a few weeks before I decided to name the company Sooth, I looked into it, and I could have bought Sooth.com for 3500 bucks. and okay. something in the back of my mind said, well, no, maybe, wait, you'll come up with a better idea. Three weeks later, I decide to call the company Sooth. I go back to buy it, and somebody has picked it up, and it's being offered on the second market a hundred thousand dollars oh no so, <laughs> so at that point i said well there, there's enough fun you can have with you know we thought about sooth or dare ultimately landed on sooth be told as our uh, as our
1: domain they saw you snooping around and uh i, you there I in think that, that is
0: absolutely true and shame on you whoever did that
1: there you go i didn't ask you this in the pre-interview but with that long of a career do you have any favorite brands you work with or favorite campaigns that were just, you thought, brilliantly, interesting, creative, struck the right chord. Any, any stories right. there? I, I had the
0: chance to work on some amazing brands over the course of my career. Got to spend a little time working with Apple. That was certainly a highlight. Uh, but uh, my all-time favorite brand, and actually, this is a, this is a blatant pitch because um, they need my help right now, is the United States Navy. Really, uh, I got the opportunity in the late 90s and early aughts to run the U.S. Navy recruiting account uh, and actually some of the strongest recruiting years that, that the Navy ever experienced. And there's been a, a huge recruiting shortfall in the U.S. Sure. military over the last few years. And look, when, when we are in a state of military and political unrest, it's easy to understand why. But one of the reasons working on that account was so meaningful to me. Look, I love working on Colgate. So any of my former Colgate clients out there, please don't take offense when I say this. But, <laughs> but if, if Colgate doesn't meet its sales goals on a certain toothpaste launch, we can still all sleep at night. Yeah. Uh, when the navy doesn't meet its accession goal, ships don't sail. And, and our country is less protected. So I think I found that work so meaningful uh, that, that it was, to an extent, a labor of love and, and very rewarding to feel like uh, I could do something to contribute to the greater good, to help people find educational opportunities and career paths that they otherwise wouldn't find. And, and you know, it felt like a noble mission to me. Now, again, that was in peacetime. Uh, it's a different time today, but I would say that was my all-time favorite account.
1: That is truly amazing and a huge shout out and thank you to our, you know, servicemen and women. It is truly amazing what they do every single day, times of peace or conflict, amazing stuff. What was the creative for that campaign? I'm trying to remember back in the day which Navy campaign Mm -hmm. that was.
0: Well, we put a huge focus at the time on careers, you know, Navy for a long time in their messaging was so focused on honor courage commitment and just sort of stirring up the patriotism of people but really in those days in the 90s the early 2000s there was a much more practical need uh and an opportunity being created uh for educational experiences and and we were really able to make a very strong case that the Uh, job experience you could pick up in the Navy had an outsized impact on your career success after. So we really focused hard on on the jobs angle and, and really positioning the Navy as a great place to start your career. And actually the most impactful piece of work we did for them, which ran for, I believe, seven years, was an infomercial of all things. And if you can imagine walking into the Pentagon, And convincing them they should produce an (laughs) infomercial for the United States Navy. Uh, But it was this amazing, we we shot film in, you know, training exercises and on aircraft carriers. and, And we really brought to life the experience of being a young naval recruit. And that not only had a lot of impact on the recruits themselves, it had a huge impact on their families. Because for parents who had all sorts of fears and concerns, it gave them a sense that uh, their their children would be going into a positive, encouraging uh, environment where they could develop and grow and experience things that they could never experience any other way. So yeah, I mean, we did you know a lot of of flashy TV stuff and really you know hardworking print and all that, but. Uh, that infomercial, that was really special. I, my God, I think even in those days, it, it had something like a $3 million production budget, which, I mean, there was no infomercial that anyone was spending more than 50 grand producing in those days. But but yeah, going into the Pentagon and selling that in was definitely a career highlight.
1: <laughs> that is truly incredible. And I feel like I'm going to pick your brain after this episode on like all the other things. That's amazing. I think this ties in some of the things I can tell her a through line in your career. And that is that empathy piece. Not many people would necessarily connect the dots. I mean, certainly people obviously would think about the parents a little bit, but how this is the best means to a great end. And there's a real heartstrings element to that whole thing, too, as you're making these tough decisions. And I know you mentioned empathy earlier, something you're using A.I to connect with empathy, which is a little counterintuitive when everybody thinks about AI as this cold, hard thing that's going to take over the world. I personally think AI is great and it's going to let us exceed human potential. I love the story, how you're connecting it to the empathy side. Maybe dive in on that a little bit.
0: Sure. Well, uh, AI is really the only reason I have the business I have today. Because the type of work that, that I've described that really has been driving the last 20, 25 years of my career, finding these unique emotional insights and these emotional ways to bond uh, brands to customers that, that the brand's competitors weren't able to get to, sure. that always took a lot of legwork, a lot of custom research ate up a lot of resources sometimes it would take us a year 18 months to get that you know amazing nugget that would lock the brand to different levels of performance now i can crunch the sort of data that used to take me easily six months in a couple of weeks so that brands can put it right into action and ai is the only thing that allows me to do that Because what we do, not to get too deep under the hood of of our model, but we look at anonymized data on 220 million U.S. adults, and then we simultaneously ping it against thousands of different attitudinal, behavioral, transactional factors to form up a decision-making model for that that audience or for that individual. And then we use that to help the brand map to what people genuinely need from it. So it it takes a lot of the guesswork out, but it also crunches an extraordinary amount of time and and allows us to deliver these insights at a fraction of the cost of traditional research. You know, one of the big challenges with traditional research, and I've long described myself as a research nerd, it's the first thing to get redlined from every marketing plan. Yeah. Nobody wants to spend the money, nobody wants to wait. But when we're able to say to a brand, well, no, for actually, like, for the margin of error on yeah. most job estimates, and in a few weeks, you can have real-time insights that by the way, we're able to update on a weekly basis, uh, it, it dramatically changes the way brands can go to market.
1: That is truly incredible. And I've seen that back uh, maybe 10 years ago when we were at my previous company doing a lot more brand stuff. The research studies and brand lift studies and everything always were kind of tossed in as added value and you had to deal with the pricing on all of that stuff. And it was such a pain being able to do that actionably and efficiently is amazing.
0: And well. and it only takes one little thing to change in the market to invalidate your research, right? Yes. So, so you, you develop all these insights, and then a competitor changes their offer, and all of a sudden, the buying criteria in your category have completely changed, or something happens in the world, or Taylor Swift starts a new relationship, and suddenly, <laughs> you know, all the dynamics of your category are different. We can actually see that in real time. We can reassess and, and give the clients uh, updated insights on the fly. I wish you were
1: joking, but Taylor Swift's new relationships, I think, actually is like world news at this point in time and does impact consumer behavior. Which is uh, what, what do they not impact? You know, when,
0: when, when we tell the tale of the 2024 presidential election, will anyone tell that story without some reference to Taylor Swift? Uh, By the time it's over, probably not.
1: That is insane to say out loud. Um, <laughs> I know To the extent it's not proprietary, what kind of data sets are you feeding into your model? And if it is proprietary, you can bow out of that, but any just sort of general sense of like, what types of things are you are looking at?
0: It's everything from uh, affinities for brands, celebrities, types of creative approaches, uh, tone, visual, uh, copy depth all the way through to buying criteria and a category, the way people see themselves, uh, personal feelings of wellness, uh, experiences with retailers, experiences with all sorts of professional practices, you know, doctors you've seen, lawyers you've seen, uh, ways that you've voted, we're, we're able to uh, license over 2000 different behavioral AI models that allow us to really layer a very nuanced picture of who an audience is and how they decide it is so common now for brands to overfocus on the moment of truth gosh i'm so worn out on that phrase you know they Everyone focuses on the moment somebody's ready to buy. But here's the reality. If you're a brand that has invested millions or tens of millions of dollars in brand equity, in creating a a differentiated positioning for your brand and and some remarkable assets in the way of customer experience or your mobile app or whatever the case may be, and all of that can be wiped out in a 15-second interaction on Facebook. Where somebody sees a dupe product and in two clicks, they've just purchased something that promises to do everything your brand does, whether or not it's capable of delivering. People's yeah. consideration, they are so worn out. There is so much decision fatigue at this point. It is so hard to tell one brand story from another. And all of a sudden, all that brand equity has been wiped out. So I believe the magic is in moving the role of brand equity earlier to be able to anticipate impulses so that brands can unlock empathy, understand where a customer is at and often how to solve problems before they're recognized as an immediate need.
1: Mm -hmm. Interestingly, we've seen digital spend, I mean, I guess all marketing spend going up, but results have kind of gone down a little bit. I have to imagine, Moving things forward in this chain is helping you. I mean, I think it's probably part of why you started what you're doing, but. Well, Salesforce published a very disturbing statistic
0: last year. uh, You probably saw it, which said that uh, between 2020 and 2023, overall global marketing effectiveness had declined 23%. And when we think about the fact that we have more data than ever, more technology than ever, more differentiated, vertical, narrow ways of reaching people than ever, more of a two-way dialogue between brands and humans than we've ever had. It is absolutely confounding, and I would say completely unacceptable that marketing performance should be declining. And again, I think it's because uh, brands have become so enamored with focusing on the buy moment and they're forgetting about the people doing the buying and their motivations and what keeps them up at night. And, and we, we've lost that sense of sonder that I think marketing had at another time, that recognition that everyone is, is living a life with unique needs and we should be able to meet people where they are much more effectively. That's, that's why I'm in business
1: interesting do you think it's the amazon effect if i go on there i search for something and i have 400 options and then it's just easier to price compare what what has led us
0: to i think amazon certainly a factor look i i think i'm not going to blame all the big tech companies but the reality is amazon google meta as three entities have completely changed the way brands go to market They have created this expectation that it is all about that moment somebody is ready to buy. And they have also created a commoditization. It's not. Yes, the Amazon effect also plays out in a a place like Google Shopping Engine, where I Google a product. And I see a bunch of places offering competing prices on what looks like the same thing. The reality is those, those retailers offering those things are not all the same. You could very well be walking into counterfeit product or, or a dupe. Uh, so I think is the commoditization of the moment of truth does lie with those three tech giants uh, yeah. But there are also ways to work with all of those platforms to actually unlock empathy that the same data can be used differently. It's you know one of the ways we look at it is I think we're coming out of the big data era mm-hmm. and it's really time for the good data era. for brands to say, well, how can I use data in ways that are kind that that unlock, a genuine emotional connection with a customer because that's not just like a warm and fuzzy now. Emotional connection is is the highest leverage vehicle brands have today. It's been proven to increase the lifetime value of a customer four times and to extend the average lifetime of a customer 20 months. So so this is not a, a nice to have. This is make or break.
1: Yeah, it is. Amazing. And I think about the brands. There's a few that I'm just loyal to time and time again. And it's because they've built a certain reputation, but also I feel an affinity toward the way that they act and do these things. And that is built over time. And I don't buy from them all the time. When it's time to buy, I go back to them. And it's. And you probably can recall a moment. You know, I do this
0: exercise very often when I'm. Uh, leading client sessions on on brand positioning or, or yeah. evolving their brand. And I'll ask them to think about their favorite brand and I'll go around the room and ask each person to describe an experience that vaulted that brand to the top of, of their emotional ladder. Yeah. Like for me, Hilton is one of those brands. I've had a couple of, of moments over the years where Hilton came through for me in a way that I wouldn't expect every hotel chain to come through. In a moment of genuine need, whether it was business, whether it was personal, when I had a daughter who was stranded in a strange city and and was under the legal age to check into a hotel by herself and had nowhere to go, and a Hilton representative Stepped up, got in touch with a, a property general manager who directly connected with me and my daughter and, and was waiting for her to set her up in a safe place. Like, OK, wow. Hilton, loyalty for life. And what's amazing to me when I engage in that exercise with marketers is it's very easy for everyone to produce a memory akin to that. For a brand that's occupied an emotional space but then when you want them to pivot to the brand that they market day in day out somehow they don't put as much value on emotional yeah. connection but it is how we all choose it's the only place brand love comes from i mean sure uh you know bonnie Raitt was right i, I can't make you love me if you don't and as much as brands want to talk about the quest for love that's a two-way street People yeah. want you to show them love. And one of the best ways brands can do it is by recognizing and rewarding somebody for what they genuinely want and need.
1: Hmm. That's fascinating. I'm a big, big believer in sort of the human side of brand and that if you take care of your customer and you take care of people, the rest kind of takes care of itself. And I'm sure you've had bumps in the road with Hilton, too, where something got screwed up, but they had built that affinity through doing the right thing enough times that when there were bumps in the road, you're like, you know what, you're allowed to have a little mistake here and the, the previous thing has got you over that. And I feel like a lot of brands forget that human element of things.
0: You know, Steve Jobs used to say that um, a brand was like a a bank account where the currency was trust. Yeah. And the more the brand deposits into that bank, the more moments where that customer feels like I can really trust you, you get me, you understand me, you've helped me. You can get away with a few, you know, there will be deductions, but as long as the balance is positive, you're in a good place with that customer.
1: I hope my team listens to every one of these episodes, but I'm going to make sure they listen to this one. This is very, (laughs) very important. We always got to be putting those deposits in the bank. (laughs) Yeah, It's good stuff. Um, Something we talked about just a little bit ago was sort of the big tech companies and obviously there's been a lot of privacy sort of pushback on them, Google specifically now You know, removing one percent of cookies from Chrome here, uh, you know, finally seeming to go down that path. There's some legislation pending in a bunch of states. I'd like to know, by the way,
0: how much money Google made from paid search strings containing the the phrase "cookieless future." I think that was a self fulfilling
1: yeah. yeah it up, like deal with the trade press to just keep sending <laughs> <traffic> <laughs> something there. What is what is sort of the brand and agency view on privacy in this changing world and? Do you think it matters? We always hear the sky is falling. I don't think the sky is falling in any way, shape or form. I think the pie just is maybe sliced up a little bit differently, but it's not like the pie gets smaller. It maybe shifts around, but we've seen that happen with iOS and various other changes. Like the dollars just move a little bit. They don't go away. What's the brand and agency sort of sentiment on the changing privacy landscape?
0: I, I think more uh, brands and agency people are beginning to recognize the need to uh, improve the value equation between brands and customers. It it was so easy to get fat on data for a long time and say, you know, we're just gonna plant this cookie there for months and keep putting this ad in front of you until we bludgeon you into submission. Uh, And we're just gonna live in your browser and watch everything you do. And it's easy to get greedy And it's easy to lose sight of the fact that you do need to be depositing into that trust bank. Uh, and, and as, as cookies do diminish and disappear, brands are starting to recognize we actually have to give people something that they value in order for them to keep sharing who they are with us. You know, what we're finding is like we're, we're, uh, Personal privacy was actually a much higher order concern for most consumers a few years ago. Yeah. Uh, we're seeing that Generation Z is actually less concerned about their personal data than the older cohorts are. And they're now starting to take over the economy, uh, sure. both financially and behaviorally in a lot of ways. So the, the stakes there are not as high, but the expectations. Is higher than ever that if I share something about myself with you, if I let you see where I am and what I do and what's important to me and who I live with and how I spend my time and how I spend my money, I want to be rewarded with something that is more yeah. meaningful and valuable to me as an individual. And it's not just about uh, you know the, the whole broken promise of customer centricity where brands invested just tens of millions of dollars building these hyper-reactive systems that were all about facilitating what somebody needed when they were buying from you. But if you look at what people actually want from brands, Accenture released some great work last year where they showed a huge chasm, category by category, between what customers want from brands and where brands have actually been spending their money. And the the most heinous example, I think, is in consumer banking, where brands have invested in technology and convenience, and and what do people actually want? They want a bank they can trust. And brands actually have done very little in that space to improve consumer trust in banking. I think a, a, a bank that can make a greater promise Uh, when it comes to trust, will reap a a lot of success as opposed to all of these, you know, me too kind of ads that are out there. Look what my ATM can do. Look what my ATM can do. Look, I can deposit a check on my phone. Like, what year is this?
1: You know, it's it's fascinating. I was talking to somebody that is building out uh, more of a consumer presence for what was more of an online credit card brand. I, I can probably say it was Capital One they have been actually doubling down and opening physical locations. And I was talking to them about it one day. I'm like, why are you opening physical locations? I haven't been to a bank branch more than once in a year, but I right. had ATMs and everything. I had to my checks online and they said it was the trust thing. There was an element of people for whatever reason needed to know that they could go to the bank if they wanted to, not because they actually did, but because if that weird instance they needed to go, there was a location. And so they've actually started to open up physical, physical locations. They've been pretty creative about it, of it's like a cafe in a mall or yes. something. It's not like traditional freestanding bank, but it was I actually, I uh, used
0: to live on a street in Manhattan where they opened up their first Capital One cafe. It was right on okay. the corner and, and it was a fascinating model to me because you could be downstairs yeah. just having, you know, coffee and, and pastry. But then right up the staircase where all the bankers ready to meet any of your needs. And it, it's uh, people like to do business with people, yeah. no matter how much technology changes that. And even if, if at some point the people we're talking to aren't even really people, yeah. you know, that that nature of somebody understands my needs and will respond and will not just treat me as an account number is very meaningful. I,
1: I couldn't agree more. We could go on forever about this stuff because I'm fascinated with behavioral economics nerd and all of the marketing elements of that. I just same I love same. it. I can tell you do too. We should, though, give some folks some predictions for the year. What does your uh, crystal ball say about 2024? While we're relatively young in it, seems like the sentiment is positive. What are you seeing on your side?
0: Oh, yeah. I Look, I, I think uh, all the economic factors, uh, certainly in the U.S. economy, are are pointing to a robust year we're seeing a lot of growth we're seeing an increase in consumer confidence people have jobs people are spending money it's an election year so there's no reason to believe that any of that will die down at the same time the stakes and the pressure on marketers you're feeling them be raised We're we're seeing a lot of the headlines again that we saw this time a year ago about big brands putting their business in review heat on agencies cmo feeling the heat gartner reported that three quarters of cmos say they don't have enough budget to hit their performance goals uh, so so with all of this money pouring into the economy everyone has the right to expect more performance. Yep. And I, I feel like the the intensity of pressure, the heat level is, is going to continue to rise throughout the year. Uh, so I, I think it's a robust year. It's a great year to be in marketing. But I think the expectations for performance are going to outstrip anything we've seen in quite a number of years.
1: So you don't think the average CMO tenure is getting longer than it's what current 18 months or whatever that is? <laughs> Not I, a great stat for CMOs. <laughs>
0: it is it is a tough time to be a CMO. It is a tough time to be an agency. Okay. Uh, and and the reality is because marketing performance has declined the way it has, a lot of decisions are being made by procurement departments where sure. you know advertising and marketing services are being purchased by the pound. Uh, And it's more about how many bodies and how many hours am I going to get, not how many valuable customer relationships or how much product will I sell, because the expectation for performance is so low at this point. I hope this is the year that that tide turns. And selfishly, I hope Sooth is a big part of that, because I I think the road to that type of success uh, will come through brands recognizing the need for empathy and genuine emotional connection with their customers.
1: I love it. I have one more question for you, but how can people get in touch with you if they would like to add that empathy uh, layer into their marketing plan here?
0: I'm, I'm easily found on LinkedIn. Uh, it's just my name, Ian Baer, I-A-N-B-A-E-R, seven little letters. Um, our uh, website is uh, at SoothBeTold, S-O-O-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D.com. Uh, so you can find me, uh, there, just sh- drop an email to hello at com, and uh, I'll make sure I get right back to you. And uh, you can probably tell I love talking shop. That's
1: great. So I will finish with the question that I ask every one of our guests and has become a pretty nice series. We've collected all these answers, actually. And some good, good stuff here. What is a piece of advice the current version of Ian would give to his younger self?
0: Well, there, there's a few younger selves when you spend you know, 35 years in the agency business. But uh, I think the most important piece of advice that I try to give people now, having learned what I learned, is uh, to really bring yourself to work every day. We are in an industry where it is easy to lose your individualism. Uh, there's a certain expectation that, that happens through agency culture, brand culture, but more than ever, we're at a time when it's the power of the individual that's really going to shine through, it's going to differentiate. And I certainly found that I became much more effective and impactful as a professional when I broke down that wall between who I was at home and who I was at work. I, balance is sort of a, I think it's a bit of a false promise. Um, oh, yeah. I'm most comfortable being all me all the time. And probably that's the most important piece of advice I would give to myself is bring those same attitudes, ethics, uh, constant questioning and asking why not just doing things that uh, that I bring to my personal life uh, to my work life every day and and I would and do advise any younger people starting out in the industry it's the best thing you can do is find a place where your soul is contributing to the business not just you know sort of going through the motions and bringing home a paycheck it it not only impacts your quality of life, but it's going to impact business results dramatically.
1: I adore that. And it's in fact, the exact answer that I gave when sort of asked this at a speech, you said it probably more eloquently than I did there. Uh, But I spent early pieces of my career, like playing this TV version of what I thought I was supposed to be doing. And every time I've moved, I guess the last two jobs, I've been like, screw it i'm coming to work as myself i probably swear a little more than you're supposed to but you're going to get the real me every day and it is so much more fulfilling as a human being to get to do that than have to act all the time and so i will double down on that advice and hope everybody listening is still on right now because this one's an important one um (laughs) thank you so much it's been a fantastic chat today i think we genuinely could have gone on for hours about the the psyche of marketing and all of those things but i just want to thank you again for jumping on today
0: Oh, thanks so much, Kurt, and, and hey, there's always more to talk about. So let's do it again someday.
1: I love it. Thank you again to Ian for chatting with us. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you have a spare moment, please check us out on Google Play, iTunes, or your listening platform of choice. Please leave us a review and subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. For feedback or suggestions or guests, you can reach us at podcast at com. As always, special thanks to Matt Hanline for our music. And to Caroline Romano for helping with editing, production, and making sure people know this podcast exists. Until next time.